0: Well, as the uh, old saying goes, how time flies when you're having fun. And uh, over the last few days, of course, preparing for for this Sunday, all kinds of memories kind of flooded through my mind, and I started thinking uh, 10 years ago what things were like. Uh, 10 years ago, back when uh, sweater vests were cool. Who who am I kidding? Sweater vests have never been cool. but. over the course of, of these 10 years, I've uh, certainly enjoyed uh, serving alongside you and uh, the uh, the privilege of every week getting up here to do what I love to do uh, is, has been a great joy for me. Um, <clears throat> I, I did come prepared with some Kleenex, but it's not so much for me, it's, it's for those of you because those of you that have been around for the last ten years know that I may have been at this for forty years, but I still haven't learned how to stop spitting when I preach. So you'll notice at the at the front here, we've we've got kind of the spit guard where where most of you know your proper distance, and so I'll try to maintain that for for the majority of this morning, unless unless you know, unless I didn't have a shower, and then I'll try to accommodate. But. Uh, as Josh has already mentioned, we come to the end of this series on the ultimate sermon, Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And as, as he concludes his sermon, hopefully I'll, I'll learn a thing or two and learn how to conclude my own. So let's, uh, let's be standing together as we hear from Jesus in these final words of his sermon. Matthew 7, starting with verse 24. And to the end of the chapter, Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock." And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we come to you because we've come to the end of ourselves. And we know that you are the only one who is mighty to save you alone have, have shown us the, uh, the power of grace and the paths of your, of your grace. And so we, we trust in you like no other. Meet us here today in the midst of our joys and sorrows, our ups, our downs, our to-do lists, our wish lists, and lead us in the way everlasting. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please take a seat. Have you ever been in the experience where you've gone to church and it's not your regular church so things are a little foreign for you and you're not exactly sure how you're supposed to behave. Ever been there? You're not sure whether this church is an Amen church or an Amen church or an Amen church. And you don't know when they pass around the communion elements whether you're supposed to eat them right away or whether you're supposed to save them so that you could all eat at the exact same time. Or you're not exactly sure when you're supposed to stand up and and when you're supposed to sit down. Ever been there? That whole standing up and sitting down thing is just a little confusing. And Jesus doesn't help us a whole lot here. Because back in Jesus' day, when people wanted to preach, they would sit down to preach. And then after they were done, they would stand up. That seems a little backwards. Because you've noted when it's time for for me to preach, I stand up, and then when it's time for me to conclude, I will sit down, probably a lot later than most of you had hoped. But this whole standing up and sitting down kind of thing is is just a little odd and can be just a little confusing, but we need to rest assured that in the midst of all this, Jesus is not confused. In the midst of all of this, Jesus is still the ultimate master preacher. And he's getting ready to stand up. He started this sermon way back in the first few verses of chapter 5 in Matthew's gospel, and this has lasted all the way to the end of chapter 7. And so he's about ready to wrap things up, to draw things to a conclusion. So before we get to the whole idea of what Jesus has been saying, we need to do just a little bit of a kind of a coming to preaching time out here, and we need to learn a little bit more of, of how you would normally construct a sermon, just kind of a freebie here for those of you who may not know. So a, a sermon is basically comprised of three parts, right? Introduction, the body or the message, and the conclusion. It's very similar, and oftentimes, uh, it's compared to flying on an airplane where you, ha- you have the takeoff, and then you have the flight, and then you have the landing, Right? So it's it's simple, and so maybe the way in which we can uh, describe it, the introduction is like the takeoff. Now the takeoff shouldn't last terribly long (laughs) because you run out of runway, right? It's very important because if, if you don't take off, you go nowhere, but you shouldn't spend all of your time trying to get off the ground. So that's why a lot of introductions don't last very long. As a matter of fact, when you turn back to chapter 5 in in Matthew's gospel, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. That's it out of three chapters. That's the introduction because it's setting the uh, stage for the flight. And the flight is by far the longest period of time, right? You're up there in the air. It's the body of the message. It's what you're trying to say. It's where you get fed. Now, every analogy is somewhat flawed because if you've flown on an airplane recently, you don't get fed a lot. I mean, uh, if, you, if you can survive on a glass of water and some dry pretzels, uh, good on you. But so, you know, maybe it's not exactly. So, if you did a transatlantic or transpacific flight, then they would actually feed you. And then, you know, the analogy is saved. But the majority of the time is spent in the message itself, in the air. And then that leads us to the third part, which is the landing, the conclusion. So after you've been in the air for a while, the pilot knows that they have to intentionally land that plane. And that's not something you do thoughtlessly. You need to do this on purpose. Because you can't just be flying through the air and then just stop, even if you have air brakes, because gravity is against you, right? Or or you don't circle the airport until you run out of gas, because... That's not a great way. That, that's kind of a crash and burn scenario, right? So, even though the landing is is not terribly long in, in relation to the rest of, of the flight, it's extremely important. As a matter of fact, if you are prone to be somewhat of a white-knuckle traveler, it's probably those few moments as you are landing that you feel the most nervous. Because there are more things that can go wrong in a landing than almost any other part of the flight. So it's a very pivotal, important part of the flight. Now we have, we have someone here who even teaches people how to fly, so he, he could even, uh, you could go and talk to Adrian later and he'll fill you in. It's important that you take off, it's important that you fly straight and right, and it's important that you land properly. And what Jesus is doing in the words that we just read is that he's starting to land the plane. As a matter of fact, he started his descent back in verse 13, and now starting as we did in verse 24, he's in his final approach to land the plane. And pilots will tell you, any landing where you can walk away, <laughs> that's a good landing. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's trying to land a plane in this very pivotal part of what he's trying to say. So if we miss what Jesus is saying in these few verses, we miss it all. Because a flight without a proper landing is not a proper flight At all. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's landing the plane uh, and showing us exactly where it is he wants to end. And when Jesus concludes, you'll notice he seems to do it in a way that's a bit different than, than some preachers. When some preachers come to the time of conclusion, they know it's very important. You know, all all the eggs are in this basket and so they can get all red in the face and they can point their bony fingers at, at members of the congregation and they can make idle threats that you don't take very seriously because they realize how important this is. But when Jesus comes to the point of his conclusion, there are no bony fingers that are pointed at the crowd. He doesn't necessarily even raise his voice. What Jesus does... Weird as it sounds, is he tells us just two little short stories. Two little stories, that's it. And he's done. He tells us a story about two guys. One guy who was wise, and the other guy that was less so. And so these two stories form the conclusion of what Jesus has been telling us for the last three chapters. So Jesus starts with the first guy, and what he talks about are these two guys and how they go about building their homes. He ends his sermon talking about home construction, which again seems a little odd, but he's got something up his sleeve. So this first guy, the one who is identified as wise, builds his house on a firm foundation. So he builds his house on bedrock. Now in Luke's version of this this same story, Jesus says that he dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. So, What does that mean, to dig deep and lay your foundation on the rock? So all you need to do is to ask anyone, so we'll kind of go over to this quadrant, anybody who builds houses, ask them what's most important about a house, and they will tell you a foundation. If you build a beautiful house on a weak foundation, that's not a good house. The test of a good house is its capacity to to remain firm forever, for as long as possible. And if the foundation is bad, that house will not stand the test of time. So, what's most important in terms of home construction, despite what you might have heard when you read the Three Little Pigs thing, that story. The most important part of home construction is not what you build with, it's what you build on. And so this wise man decides to build his house on the rock so that it will stand the test of time. And so that's why Jesus says, and the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. Now Jesus is speaking these words in ancient Israel. And Israel is a very, very arid country until the autumn season, and then usually it kind of makes up for the shortage of rainfall in in a few short bursts. And so rain in, in Israel in the autumn just comes almost without warning, and it comes down like a flood, like a torrent. And once dry and desert valleys all of a sudden are are swarming with water. and, And the floods come down and wipes everything clean in its path almost without warning. And so they have these massive torrential rains that come and just sweep the thing clean. And so Jesus is saying, this man built his house on a strong enough foundation that when these rains came, he wasn't tenting somewhere in one of the wadis there. He was building his house on the rock, and that house stood firm. That's his point, is that when, when the storms come, that the house remains firm. Now... What is Jesus meaning by these storms? So what does it mean when we build our house on the bedrock and the storms come? Is he talking about Jesus being with us in the midst of of the storms of life? When when things are are difficult and we're having a hard go and when all of our best laid plans seem to be going south on us and, and we need a friend and, and we're, we're reaching out for, for any form of, of, of meaning in the midst of life, is, is that what Jesus is talking about, these storms? Is Jesus promising to be with us in, in the midst of these stormy times? Well, yes, he does, but not here. <laughs> what he's talking about here is, is not his capacity to be with us in the midst of our difficulties, because there's all kinds of places where he promises that. What Jesus is talking about here, these storms talk about basically the final judgment. And how do you determine whether your house has been built on a firm foundation? It ultimately comes down to the final judgment where God makes the call. Will your house stand firm or will it be washed away? Is it built on a strong enough foundation that... It will be able to stand the discerning eye of God the judge when he calls all things to account." Now, remember, that that does not discount the fact that all the way along, Jesus will be with us in our storms, but Jesus is looking towards the big storm. And some of these houses that look really good for a long time, when it comes to examining their foundation, that's when they rise and fall. And so, Jesus is calling on us to build our house on the rock, our lives on the rock. Now, when we hear about building on the rock, it's, it's very tempting to say that to build on the rock means we build our lives on Jesus. Kind of sounds like something you might have heard in Sunday school. Or, or maybe you heard that old camp chorus. You know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. Anybody that old? The foolish man built his house upon the sand, Right? At the end, it says, so build your life on the Lord. Right? So if you, if you build your house on Jesus, that should give you the firm foundation. And it's very tempting to think that's what Jesus is saying. It's tempting, but it's wrong. What Jesus is talking about, when we build this firm foundation, he's talking about paying attention to his words. He's saying, have you been listening for the last three chapters? And if your life is built on these words of mine, which are truth, which are life, then your life, your house, will stand the test of the final judgment. It will be secure. So he's talking about us building on something that is strong and steadfast. And we're not all that great about uh, knowing what houses are like here, because if we have a house around here that lasts a 100 years, we celebrate. We call it a century house, and it costs a fortune. But there's good parts of the world where, where there are structures that have been around for centuries, even millennia. And the reason why they are so long-lasting is because they've been built on a firm, secure foundation. And Jesus says, the wise man is the one who hears these words of mine and does them. That's what makes this guy wise. That he not only hears what Jesus is saying, but he does it. He puts it into action. And then Jesus turns his attention to the other guy. The guy who is not so bright, but is too dumb to know it. The foolish man. The guy who thinks he knows better than everyone, but knows less than everyone. He's the guy who thinks that oceanfront property means that you build your house on the beach. And we already know that you can't do that. Because Jesus has already given us the picture of this firm foundation. And so when we see some guy who's going to build his house on sand, Jesus is already setting us up to realize that's not a wise thing to do. That's why this guy is called foolish. You don't build houses on sand pits. Now, I I went to great lengths just to research this because I had to go all the way to PEI to find some, some sand and to do some experiments of my own. And I was there on the beach, those beautiful red beaches, and I would dig down in those beaches, and it didn't matter how wide I dug or how deep I dug, the sides would all fall in. It was highly, highly unstable. Anybody with two cents of of brain power knows you don't build a house on sand. It's not firm enough. Because sooner or later, the rains are going to come or the tides are going to come in, and that's going to judge whether or not this house is secure. And remember what we've said, that, that a house can look pretty good for quite a while, even if it's built on a shaky foundation, but sooner or later, that's going to tell. You're going to know that your foundation was feeble. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Italy before, but maybe you have visited this leaning tower in Pisa. And so the, the thing kind of goes like this, and then they realize, oh, that's not good, so they started kind to correct it partway through and really dumb-looking place because it doesn't have a firm foundation. Or maybe even closer to home, maybe you've been driving to to Moose Jaw and and you're looking to the north of the road and there's that farm house to to the north that has a roof that's kind of looking like that. You kind of figure that's probably not something that they planned. But they built their house on an insecure foundation and the thing's sagging. And so that's what Jesus is saying. So for those of you who, who are aware that, that this is obviously not a great option, we, we've almost convicted ourselves because Jesus doesn't even have to do this. He just says, this foolish man builds his house on sand. And when, when the rains come and, and, and the winds blow and it beats against that house, it doesn't stand firm, it falls and Jesus says its fall was spectacular. So, going back to our little rhyme here, and it, it says it, there's a part in that course where it says, and, and the house on the sand went splat. That's spectacular. I don't know how many of you uh, saw footage of, of the old Mosaic Stadium coming down. The demolition. That was pretty spectacular. That's what Jesus is talking about. The fall of a life that is not built on something that will last forever. That fall will be spectacular. It will be eye-popping. And so we're faced with these two guys, the wise one and the foolish one. And, And we look at this foolish one and we think, What an idiot. Who would dare build a house on sand? And then we remember what Jesus says about this foolish one. The foolish one is what? The foolish one is the one who hears my word and doesn't do it. All of a sudden what Jesus says gets a lot more pointed and a lot more personal. Has anyone here ever known what Jesus said and not done it? Do we, do we need a show of hands? Have you done everything that God has told you to do? Have you done everything you know Jesus wants you to do? Isn't that strange? Jesus doesn't have to get all blustery and and shake his finger and get all red in the face. All he has to do is tell these two little stories and we convict ourselves. He's saying what is necessary is for us not just to hear what he's saying, but to put it into practice. Jesus' dream of, of the kingdom is one where there is intentional obedience. Where we intend, as followers of Jesus, to do as he says, to be obedient. Because what Jesus tells us to do is for our own good. That's Jesus' dream for us, his people. And all he does is he just lays down those two little stories and he stands up, and he walks down the hill. He's done. There is one thing about the sermon that we haven't learned about yet, so it's comprised of three parts. But the most important part of the sermon is actually the part after the sermon is over. See, the sermon isn't really over when the preacher's done talking. The sermon is only done when the message of that sermon has found expression in the lives of his people. The most important part of any sermon is our response to it. It's not enough just to hear. So, We're faced, obviously, with this call of what do we do with what Jesus has just said. Now, there are all kinds of responses that that we can have, as there were even in Jesus' day. So, one of the options, of course, is that we can hear what Jesus says, and, and we can reject it. This was a favorite response of those religious leaders of the day, those Pharisees and and Sadducees and and scribes. They were the ones who felt that what Jesus was saying was was not the truth. They were so invested in their power and their privilege that, that they couldn't even allow themselves to think that what Jesus is saying might indeed have been true, so they rejected it. And they rejected him. Now, rejecting Jesus and rejecting his people is almost a growth industry these days. But you don't have to be one of these high-profile new atheists to reject Jesus. You you don't have to be a Richard Dawkins or a Christopher Hitchens to reject what, what Jesus is saying here. All you have to do is is pretend that you're way above this to kind of play the role of the the cynical intellectual. And even though you may not even know how to spell intellectual, (laughs) you can be cynical and and say, well, that's old-fashioned. That's impossible. That just can't be. Or you could take a little softer approach and say, well, that might be true for you but it's not true for me. That's a subtler way of rejecting what Jesus is saying. But the house built on rejection goes splat. So we could reject what Jesus says. We also could neglect what Jesus has to say. Now that would mean that when we hear Jesus Telling us these things, we we know, wow, that that sounds right. But it's just very inconvenient. And we know that Jesus is calling us to, to seek the kingdom, he's calling us to follow him, to be his disciples, and and to go after the kingdom. But that's so hard. We'd rather be consumers than disciples. We don't necessarily want to go after the kingdom. We just want to go shopping or anything that distracts our attention away from what Jesus is demanding and what we enjoy. And so we find ourselves finding ways of ignoring and neglecting what Jesus tells us. Sometimes we even try to get theological about it and say, well, Jesus is saying that we should do these things, but we don't want to get trapped into thinking that we earn our own way to salvation and we know that the Apostle Paul tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, so we try to pit Paul against Jesus. And it doesn't work. All you have to do is read any of Paul's letters and you know at some point in Paul's letter he's saying exactly the same thing as Jesus is. So it doesn't matter how we go about it. We cannot neglect what Jesus is saying because even though we wish it would go away and those unguarded moments, it will always come back because Jesus' words have the ring of truth. And they cannot ultimately be ignored or neglected. And the house that's built on neglect will go splat. Well, maybe you want to try another response. Another way that we can go about the words of Jesus is that we can try to understand it. Now here's... Now, this could get a little intense because we're kind of a, we're a community of schools, right? And schools love understanding. We, we love digging deep and, and understanding some of the, the, the mysteries of the faith. We, we get delirious thinking about how many angels are line dancing on a coma. Coma. Either one. And, and we, we see fireworks and, and renditions of the Hallelujah Chorus sound in our heads when we understand the difference between infralapsarian and supralapsarian. That's just the kind of people we are. But Jesus says, hearing this stuff is not enough. And in the New Testament, when you hear something, that doesn't just mean it goes in your ear. It means you get it. So, so notice what Jesus is saying here. He say it's not enough just for us to get it. It's not enough for us to want to know the deep truths of the faith. It's not enough for us to read 60 books about it and then write three of our own. Because hearing is still not enough. Unless... We do what we hear, that hearing is useless. And the house built on understanding will go splat. There's an echo. It's awesome. Well, we could also try pondering what Jesus says. Now, this is the result of of what happens in the original sermon. So, Jesus is done, he stands up, he walks down the hill. And all the crowds who've been gathered around the disciples, because remember back in chapter 5, Jesus is preaching to his disciples. That's who he's talking to. But while he's doing so, there's this massive crowd that gathers around kind of as a secondary audience. Jesus is done with his sermon. He gets up, walks down the hill, and, and all the crowds are just standing there with, with their mouths hanging open, agape, gobstopped at what they have just heard. And and they're amazed because this Jesus was teaching them as one with authority, not as their scribes. They can hardly believe it. They're, They're poking each other, saying, Did you just hear that? That was amazing. He didn't use any footnotes, he didn't use any air quotes. It's all his stuff. Isn't that amazing? But you see, they seem more amazed at how Jesus taught than what he taught. And so they're amazed. They ponder it all. And yet we know that when when push comes to shove, that crowd thins out. Because it's not just enough to be amazed. It's not just enough to be mystified or ponder the words of Jesus. Because the house, built on amazement, goes splat. So, what's left? We know that Jesus has been preaching for three whole chapters. And, and this, is, this is it. We don't, we don't get this. We don't get anything that he's been talking about. What is the option? that's left. He's been spending three chapters talking about what life will be like, how he dreams of life in the kingdom where those of us who know him follow him and our behavior follows suit. He has shown us how to relate to God the Father. He has shown us how to relate to one another, even our enemies. He has told us that our eyes need to be on the heavens and build our treasures and keep our treasures there because they will last. Not to spend all our time worrying and fussing about those things that are here on earth because they just don't last. He's been spending three chapters telling us how we can form our kingdom heart. A heart that yearns for the kingdom of God. A heart that will allow itself to to go without for the good of others. A heart that will value those things of, of heavenly derivation rather than simply immediate gratification. That's what he's been talking about. And now it's our call to respond. And so what does Jesus do? Something pretty simple. He doesn't even have to spell it out, does he? He doesn't even say, I want you to do this. All he does is tell us these two little stories. And in telling these two little stories, what Jesus does is he just, he just goes kind of all Nike swoosh on us. And, and he just says, just do it. Just do it. (laughs) Amen.